One of the stories that's become part of Eden Baptist lore over the years took place at a vacation Bible school some years ago. Many of you have heard the story numerous times, some of you for the first time here, but our fifth and sixth graders were in a play. We were depicting some of the parables of Christ, some of the teachings of Christ, and they were play, acting out these parts as I narrated the text of Scripture. One of the lessons was the parable we read earlier today the parable of the lost sheep in uh, Luke chapter 15. And as I was reading the text, we had this, as I remember, young lady dressed up as a shepherd, one of our fifth or sixth graders. And we taught, as I read that text about the lost sheep, we had this stuffed sheep that was strategically placed out of sight, and the shepherd was to come into the auditorium and find the sheep, as I narrated well, I'm narrating and I'm realizing this has really taken a long time. What's happening over here? I finally look up and I look these these wide eyes on our little shepherdess. She's in bewilderment because the sheep, she can't find it. <laughs> so the sheep that was lost was really literally lost in the middle of this play. And we went to finding it as a congregation and we're able to find it, thankfully. And the play went on. But think about this. When I asked the audience, as I did that night, to help find the lost sheep, there's good humor in that, but as I said that to them, I could assure them that there actually was a sheep there somewhere. Who would want to look for a sheep with no assurance that one actually existed in that auditorium that night? Let's look around the room, people. We're in here, we're looking at Luke 15, we're considering the parable of the lost sheep, and there, there might be one here somewhere. Let's all go looking around and see if we can produce one. I, it, it wouldn't be a whole lot of encouragement, would there? There might be one here. We're not sure if one is here. No, we were looking for something that actually existed. Not potentially, but actually. And that makes, I think, a huge difference. It makes a difference when we consider the work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. The truth is that when we consider our mission to spread the gospel of Christ, it is massively significant that Christ commissions us to find His sheep and to bring them into His flock. Jesus did not say there might be some sheep out there. Let's go look and see what we can find. But rather He said there will be sheep there because of My sovereign purposes. He assures us that they are out there because He has chosen to save them. We're not looking then for potential people. He assures us in John 10 and verse 16, hear His words, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also into My fold and they will listen to My voice. They have not listened to this place, but I have other sheep. They will come into my fold. He tells us that with absolute assurance. This is a crucial theme as we consider today the third in a series of messages dealing with the purpose of the local church. What is the purpose of the New Testament church? We've looked upward a couple of weeks ago and saw there that our purpose is to display the glory of God. Our purpose is to exalt His name, to know Him, to love Him, to walk in fellowship with Him. We are here as a body, as a church, to magnify the name of Christ. 
In everything that we do, there should be a demonstrable reason why we're doing it. And that reason is to magnify the name of Christ. Secondly, we looked inward. As we noted last week, we exist. We have been given life by Jesus. We have been equipped with the gift of His Word and His teachers for the purpose of building one another up in the faith. Again, everything that we do is to move in that direction. That's why we're here, to build each other up in the faith. This is not a personal seminar that we gather at, but rather is the body of Christ and we are to know the Word of God, to minister it to one another, so to build each other up in the faith. We look then today outward. Eden Baptist Church exists to magnify His name, our upward orientation, to build up His body, our inward orientation. But as we look outward, we think of this third purpose of the church, and its outward orientation. We exist as a church, if I can say it this way, to find Christ's sheep. His sheep are lost. He's told us that they're there. He's told us that they will come into His church. And our calling is to find them. I put it this way because this is how Jesus Himself instructed us to think about the matter. Before considering that particularly at some length, let's start with the basics of Jesus' perspective on reaching the world with the Gospel. The basics, Matthew chapter 16, if you'll turn there with me. Again, a bit of a unique series here as we are thinking and our transition to our new place to consider anew what is the purpose of Eden Baptist Church. And we'll look at a number of passages today as we consider this outward orientation. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Matthew 16 verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this is not the occasion for us to consider at any great length the identity of the rock to which Jesus refers here in verse 18 when He says, On this rock I will build My church. An argument is made by many that the rock is Jesus Himself. I think a stronger argument can be made that the rock is Peter's confession. And perhaps an even stronger argument, this won't make a lot of fans among Baptist circles, but I think that probably the rock is Peter Himself. I think there is good reason to believe that, at least as a representative of the apostles, who, as verse 19 indicates, and that's the contextual argument, as verse 19 indicates, they hold the keys of the kingdom. That is, they speak the gospel. They speak the truth that will send people to heaven and will send others to hell as they reject it. They hold the keys of the kingdom. On this rock I'll build my church. In any event, whatever the meaning of that rock is, what is our focus here today is I will build my church. 
This is a promise from the Lord. This isn't Jesus' best hunch. I think if things go the way I'm planning here, I'm pretty sure that the church is going to be built. This is His promise. The Sovereign Lord promises He will build His church. Not even the gates of hell itself will be powerful enough to withstand the advance of the Gospel. The transforming message of Jesus crucified and risen will go into all the world. It will conquer souls. Now, Jesus really doesn't talk here much about means. I will build my church. This is just His promise here. But we know as the book unfolds that this is pointedly discussed. In fact, as the book ends on a climax, Matthew chapter 28. We're quite familiar with this passage, and we should be. Matthew 28, 18-20. In fact, I say this is in this series of three sermons. It's pretty obvious what we're saying. If we're talking about the purpose of the church and these texts aren't obvious, something's wrong. They ought to be something that's very clear to us as we continue to consider this truth. But this passage, certainly, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Verse 18 of Matthew 28. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 18, notice that the authority lies not with us. It does not lie with a government's ability to recognize the inalienable rights of free speech. The authority lies with the risen and reigning Christ. Earlier today, just a little bit ago, I announced here what was taking place with the Good Shepherd Baptist Church in Andhra Pradesh, India. What right do we have to be investing money in that place and seeking to call Hindus to follow Jesus Christ? Who do we think we are? To say that they need to turn to our God. Well, the authority is not in Eden Baptist Church. And I think with absolute confidence we can stand and call anyone to come to Christ as Savior because the authority is His. It's in His authority that we go into all of the world and make disciples of all nations, of people within all nations. With absolute authority, verse 19, our Sovereign Lord calls His people to make disciples of all nations. Now we need to read between the lines the right ideas here. When it says make disciples of all nations, does that mean coerce them to submit to Christ? Clearly not. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Making disciples is by means of proclamation of God's truth. All nations... Not that every individual will be saved, but that individuals in all nations are the target of this saving message. The authority belongs to the risen Christ. He commissions His people to go into the world with that message and to proclaim Christ crucified and risen as Savior and Lord. It matters not what their government says. It matters not what their culture or religious heritage dictates. All nations are the target. Every individual we meet is a potential responder to the Gospel. And we can say this because Christ Himself is Lord. He has risen from the dead and He is Lord. He is the sovereign Savior in this world. 
and the only Savior, the only name by which we must be saved. This is all, I think, a necessary backdrop as we bring our thoughts together on our purpose. What I'd like us to do now is to go back in time to learn from Jesus Himself how we should view this mission. Eden Baptist Church is an outpost in the mission to proclaim the gospel throughout all the world, to all peoples. This is our mission. And as we fulfill this mission, it is vital that we go armed with the orientation that Jesus Himself instructed us to have. He taught us, He directed us to think a certain way about this mission. What is that orientation that He directed us to have? Let's turn to the book of John and chapter 6. If you'll join me at John chapter 6. As we enter John 6... Jesus is only beginning to face stiff opposition from the religious leaders in Israel. Jesus spent the previous night alone in prayer on a mountain. You remember He sent the disciples on ahead in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. The people saw Jesus going off to pray, saw the disciples being dismissed and sent on in the boat. The next day, Jesus ends up where they are. You can imagine what people were thinking. What is the one question that comes to their mind? How on earth did you get here? And that's what they're pressing him here as he is now in Capernaum with his disciples. How did you get here? His opponents also come demanding a sign, which is absolutely ridiculous because just the day before he's fed 5,000 people out of five small loaves and two fish. But they want another sign. We didn't see that. We're not sure how you pulled that off. We're not sure who you really are. Give us another sign. They're demanding this of Jesus. He ignores the question about how he got there, how he traveled to Capernaum, choosing rather to speak of his mission as the bread of life. As God fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna, as Jesus himself had fed the 5,000 with literal bread, here just very recently, so now in an ultimate sense, Jesus is the sustenance and the satisfaction of our souls. He is the bread of life. We pick up Jesus' conversation with His interrogators here in the synagogue in Capernaum at verse 35. John chapter 6 and verse 35. Thinking of it on how Jesus teaches us to conceive of this great mission Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. This is a message of ultimate hope. Jesus is Himself the satisfaction that our souls seek. He grants and sustains the life of those who throw their trust on Him in repentant faith. This is who Christ is. But in verse 36, Jesus acknowledges the obvious rejection of His opponents. I... But I said to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You have seen hope. You have seen the satisfaction of your soul. You have heard my teaching. You have witnessed my miracles. But you do not believe. Here's what I have to say about that, Jesus says. I don't know that verse 37 would naturally come out of our mouth. But here's what Jesus said. Here's how I think about that. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's interesting. All, we should note in the Greek, is singular here. That is all, not all of the ones, plural, that Jesus gives to me, but everything. God has put all things under Jesus' feet, which, of course, includes people, and that is Jesus' primary point here. Jesus' words form a subtle but exhilarating invitation, don't they? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to me, I will turn no one away. Everyone who comes to me will be received and rescued from their sin. But who is it that will actually come to Jesus? Notice how Jesus sees it. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me, and when they do, I will receive them. So God is very much involved in the equation here. God will give them to me, and I will receive them. In fact, this is the mission Jesus is bound and determined to fulfill. And we can praise God together that He is. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So draw the connection there. Verse 37, All the Father gives me, And verse 39, all that He has given me. Jesus purposely thinks about this as the Father giving Him people for His flock. The Son receives the people the Father gives, and then the Son, given the stewardship to protect those people, will raise them up at the last day. They will enter into His resurrection power. They will be united to God. Who are these people that Jesus receives? Who are these people that He secures for resurrection? Verse 40, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Well, how did Jesus' antagonist take that? Verse 41, The Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Isn't that that horror there? They are staring life in the face. They are staring their soul's satisfaction in the face. Before them stands the One who will rescue their soul and give them life in the presence of God. And all they can do is grumble. We know who this guy is. He can't really be that special. There's no way he'd come down from heaven. All they can do is grumble in the face of this joy. And Jesus picks up on that. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. It's interesting that he uses that phrase. He could have said a lot of things here. Don't be unbelieving. Don't reject me. See these miracles that I have performed. But what does he say? He says, don't grumble. You see the connection here. And in context, he's, he's paralleling his work as the bread of life with the, bread, the manna that came down from God to Israel. What did Israel do when God rained down manna upon them? They grumbled. 
You're doing the same thing, Jesus says. You're grumbling in the face of the provision of God. I stand here before you as the bread of life and all you can do is grumble. You don't like me. You don't want me to be the Messiah. You grumble in the face of God's goodness. Wrong response. Again, He's the bread of life. They simply grumble rather than receive Him. How does Jesus look at the matter? How does He interpret it and filter it? He sees their rejection in a radically God-centered light. He does not say, you stupid, stupid people. What is wrong with you? Why can't you see this? You're doing exactly what your ancestors did. Don't you realize you're rejecting the bread of life? That's not what He says. They were doing all of that. But notice how Jesus interprets the resistance of His opponents. Here's His take on it. Verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. If you have never decisively turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ as the bread of life, you are rejecting your soul's singular source of joy and satisfaction, the Savior for eternity. You're rejecting Him. If you've not decisively trusted Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, there's only one answer for your starving soul, and that is to trust Jesus Christ as the bread of life. If you eat of Him, you will never hunger again. He is that one who can bring such joy, such satisfaction, such forgiveness of sin. He can reconcile you to God by His death and resurrection as you come to trust in it. But for those of us who have trusted the saving grace of Christ, do you imagine for one minute that you drew close to Christ in your own strength and by your own initiative? Would we really want to stand before our Savior and say that? It was in me. It was who I was. It's what I did. It's what I knew. It's that I got smart all of a sudden. And it's what I did that drew me to you to see that you are the bread of life. No, Jesus says, and we know it, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God draws, the Greek word means to attract, to draw, to pull on the heart. God draws, Jesus saves. Stop grumbling, he says, and recognize that you will never come to me, your soul's ultimate satisfaction, unless the Father draws you, unless he does a unique work in your heart. Now, if I'm that unbeliever who's listening to Jesus here, if we go back in time and project ourselves there and say, I'm standing there listening to this, how do you respond? I mean, your, your eternal salvation is at stake here. Do you not respond to what Jesus says by pleading with Him, draw me. Draw me. 
God, draw me to see who Jesus is. As I said a couple of weeks ago, that's why one reason among many that I come to church. I come because I want to see Christ better. With His body, gathered with His people to discern the beauty of the Lord. Paul led us here today and and directed us in our worship. That was a beautiful orientation that we would concentrate on who God is and that is something that took place in my heart as I sang today. To narrow in and to think carefully about the grace of God, to see the beauty of the Lord which we don't see in our own strength. How would you respond if Jesus said this and you were standing there as an unbeliever? Would you not pray to the Father, please draw me? Now, does Jesus intend then to deny or minimize the responsibility of the lost to trust Him. not By no means. By no means. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And what we see in Jesus' words at verses 45 through 58 is Jesus repeatedly appealing to the will of His hearers. Repeatedly calling upon them to believe and feed on the Son as living bread. He continues to place the responsibility upon them, but He does not miss the fact that it is the Father who draws us to see the beauty of Christ. So the two work together. As the Father draws, the Gospel is presented, Christ is seen, the unbeliever responds and feeds on Christ as the living bread. So let's think of it in summary. Test what I'm saying against what Scripture teaches. The Father gives people to the Son. The Son receives those people, preserves them, and will raise them up on the last day. Drawn to the Son by the Father, these people place their saving faith in Christ, and it is then our high calling and mission as a church to proclaim the truth God uses to draw people that He chooses to the Son. That's our task. Continuing on, and we will for just a brief moment, but continue with me to John 10. John 10. This is set at the Feast of Dedication, today known as Hanukkah. As Jesus walks among the massive pillars and under the roof of Solomon's colonnade in the temple complex, He's confronted by some opponents. And guess what they want? We're fair time, we're, we're later in the text of John. Guess what they want? More signs. You know, prove to us again that you're Messiah. Or they wouldn't say it that way. They'd just say, we haven't seen anything yet that's impressed us. So give us another sign. Jesus could have had angels dance on their nose until they became cross-eyed and they wouldn't have believed the sign. They wouldn't have seen it. But they're demanding more. Show us more. Let us see it. During his ministry, Jesus was rather reserved about declaring his messianic, his messiahship for, for strategic reasons. I think the first being, it would hand his enemies a very objective case of blasphemy in their view. And Jesus wants to continue ministering and proclaiming the truth. I think another reason is his messianic claims would be confirmed ultimately by his death and his resurrection. He did claim to be Messiah, 
But he did so in rather cryptic ways. Remember what we read earlier. He said to his disciples, don't tell anybody that I am the Christ. Why? Part of it, he's preserving time so he can keep preaching the gospel. He's made it crystal clear. But he doesn't speak it very pointedly because I think it all hinges on his death and resurrection. That's what will ultimately prove that he is Messiah. In any event, his enemies press him. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's not as if Jesus has never made this clear. Verse 25, John 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Listen, I've fed 5,000 people. I've healed the dead. These signs are clear evidence that I'm Messiah. You want me to tell you so that you can quote me and charge me with blasphemy and kill me. Face the evidence. I've told you clearly, had you wanted to actually hear. I've proven the point by my signs, miraculous signs. Verse 26, but you do not believe. They've rejected Jesus. Because, verse 26, you are not among my sheep. Now that's an interesting way to put that. Again, he doesn't say, you do not believe because you're really dumb people. How can you miss the obvious signs? That's not what he says. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep believe. You're not among them. Does this mean that some people are born into God's flock while others are not born into His flock? Is he saying that these people cannot believe? No, I think verse 16 would indicate otherwise. 10.16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They are not his sheep. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see the hope that is there. There are sheep, there are people who are not part of Christ's flock, but they will be. Again, Jesus doesn't seem to be guessing here, does he? They will be part of my flock. There are sheep, not now in his flock, who will heed Jesus' voice and become part of it. And why is it that they will listen to Jesus' voice? John 6.44, No one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there is an actual, real response of faith that is utterly necessary for the one who is coming to faith in Christ, who is going to be saved, but that necessitates that the Father draws them to see the beauty of Christ. Now notice again in verse 29, back here in John 10, the emphasis falls upon not the lost, but on the purposes of the Father. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My Father has given them to me. Some are not yet part of His flock, but they will be. The ones who will join Christ's flock are those the Father gives to Jesus. God draws them to Jesus. They hear His voice. They're saved. Why? I can tell you it's not because of our evangelistic strategies. That's not why. They're important. Our strategies and tactics are important. But that's not why. 
they come to saving faith. It's not that people's rational capacities will eventually kick in and win them over if we just tell them enough times. It's not that there is something in each person capable of responding to the Gospel. No, the answer is this. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than any power on earth or in the heavenly realms, and no one has the power to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's why. comes back again to God and what He has done to save people. So it's not our capacities as evangelists or the innate power of people to respond. The point is the omnipotent purposes of a sovereign God. That is at the heart and the core of it all. And we can rejoice to know that no one is going to mess with what God intends to accomplish. Souls will be added to His church. I will build my church. This brings us back to the matter of finding Christ's sheep as the purpose of Eden Baptist Church. Everything that we do as a local church, every endeavor we pursue is to serve the purpose of exalting His name of building up his body and of finding his sheep. This, I think, again, is a crucial perspective as we enter out of this transition period and into a new building. We don't want to lose our way. We want to stay on track with the purpose that Christ has given us as his people. This facility to which we're moving is a base of operation for the proclamation of the gospel. It's nothing else. It's a tool and a location from which we can proclaim Christ crucified and risen. That's what it is. That's all that it will be. That building that we're building over there a half mile down the road is not a wedding chapel. It's not a funeral parlor. Now, weddings and funerals will undoubtedly take place there. That's an important thing. We're thankful for that, but that's not what it is. It's a base of operation to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. We're doing that today. We're rejoicing with Good Shepherd Baptist Church this day. And the part that we've had with them on the other side of the planet But that is the kind of endeavor that we need to realize is our purpose. Our purpose is to continue to serve the cause of Christ this way and to reach people with the gospel. We're in the business of proclaiming this gospel so that unbelievers will be drawn by God to the beauty of Jesus as Lord and Savior and the satisfaction of their souls. That's what we're about. And that's what we need to keep as our purpose. My purpose individually. This is why I exist, why you exist as a believer in Christ. To find active involvement in proclaiming the Gospel to unbelievers. And I don't know how we can look at this precisely. I don't want to speak for God, but I think as we have watched and tracked with this church that's developing in India, and as we have participated, all of us have had had part in that. And and the part that we're playing in that is part of our active response to this mission, to this purpose. But we also then need to be actively finding involvement in proclaiming the Gospel to unbelievers. Corporately, we are as a church to join effort together to continue to proclaim the message of Christ. 
This is why we have Vacation Bible School, why we've had our Night to Unite outreach, our home groups as they unite and work together and as we will be doing that and talking about it this afternoon and our outreach into this next month. This is why we have evangelistic Bible studies and outreach activities, why there's a distribution of uh, literature and, and uh, active evangelistic Bible studies and solicitation in neighborhoods to bring people together to hear the Word of God. This is why we're involved with this church in India and in other places of the world. Because our purpose is to spread the glorious message of Jesus crucified and risen as the bread of life, the Savior, the satisfier of our soul. That's our purpose. But the angle that I encourage us all to grasp, to carefully consider today, is that in all our evangelistic efforts, we have the assurance that we are looking for actual people, not for potential people. Jesus doesn't stand up and say, there might be people out there. He says to us, The sheep are there. They're not in my fold right now, but they will be because I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He will conquer souls through the witness of His people. Joining the work the Father and the Son are actually doing then becomes our mission. Christ reigns in authority today and He pours out His Spirit to wash clean those who trust Him as Savior. Our job is to take that message and proclaim it in saving ways to people. Our confidence lies not in us. It doesn't lie in our numbers. It doesn't lie in our presentation. It lies ultimately in the sovereign purposes of God. As Ephesians 1 put it, as we looked at that in the first sermon of this series, to display His glory, remember these words, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. We display His glories as trophies of His grace. Once believing, we then turn our efforts to win others by the proclamation of that grace. I trust that by the grace of the Lord, we will go with confidence to this new facility knowing that God our Father has chosen to save His church and called us to find actual sheep. And we need to be cautious here. That's the right orientation, I believe, because it's Jesus' orientation that He continues to speak. We can misread this. There needs to be a caution against those who seem to think, if I share the Gospel with somebody and they don't respond, they can't be Christ's sheep. Not at all. One casual conversation we turn away, guess he's not one of God. Well, how do we know? We continue to proclaim the gospel, but we do so not because we believe we can wear a person down with our arguments. Not because we think it relies upon us, but we continue to come back with the gospel over and over again because it may well be that 
in his sovereign purposes, God is using that witness to shed light upon the truth of Christ. And little by little, people come to faith. Sometimes. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's not. But we don't go resting in our purposes. We go resting in Christ's promise. I have sheep. They will join my flock. The Father will give them to me and I will take them all the way home. They will join in my resurrection. May Eden Baptist Church strive by the grace of God to fulfill the purpose of the Lord by giving ourselves to this task of finding His sheep, knowing the sufficiency does not lie in us, it lies in Him. We must walk in faith in utter dependence upon His provision, His power, and His purposes. We sang this. Do we believe it? To fulfill His great commission, this assurance must be known. The elect from every nation will surround the Savior's throne. We find strength to preach the gospel in this truth that our Savior taught. That although His sheep are scattered, He will bring them to His fold. Yes, He will. Will we join His purposes with confidence, not in us, but with confidence in the message He gave us and with confidence in this holy collaboration between Father and Son. Will we be part of that equation into the future? May God give us strength. Although His sheep are scattered, He will bring them to His fold. Let's bow for prayer. We say, Father, with thanksgiving that our confidence does not lie in us. Our confidence lies in Your purposes and the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that we can rest in that. Perhaps there's someone here today who says, I have not tasted of Jesus as the living bread. I pray, Father, that You will bring them to saving faith. I pray that You will draw them, attract them to the beauties of Christ. Please, Father, by Your mercies and for Your glory, I plead that You bring them to the light of Christ today. And may we as Your people be faithful with our witness as we trust in Your purposes to save a lost world. We can never know who ultimately will be saved, although we can have utter assurance that we have come to that place in our life. But as we proclaim the gospel, I pray that we will humbly, zealously trust in the power of your gospel and of your sovereign purposes. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.